Have you ever walked on a rope bridge? Uh, they are terrifying. There's one in San Diego that uh, uh, I used to go to all the time and would take friends out there. And uh, it, it is the most terrifying experience. It's over this huge canyon and you're walking out on this bridge and there's kind of wood planks on the ground and it's just like wires on the side. And there's always one idiot who wants to swing the thing from side to side. It's a, it's a total nightmare, right? So if you've ever been on one, I'm sure that idiot was there with you. To me, 2020 has felt like that rope bridge. And there have been a lot of idiots, right? Swinging the bridge, which, which makes this series uh, and the promises of Isaiah and in Isaiah chapter nine, all the more relevant for us. So this series in which we are looking at these four names that Isaiah gives to Jesus of wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace are, are promises to us. They are assurances in the midst of a, a crazy world full of fear and anxiety that we serve a God who is mighty. And in fact, the, today's uh, topic of Jesus as mighty God has maybe never been more relevant and more helpful than it is today. In fact, I'd argue if you're listening to this today and you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe that Jesus is a mighty God, I would argue that you should at least want to, right? Like you should at least wish he was a mighty God because if there is no mighty God, then we are on our own. And in fact, if there maybe is a mighty God, but Jesus just isn't him, you're kind of left up for grabs as to what that mighty God is like. And here's what I know about Jesus. Jesus makes a great mighty God because of all the other things we know about him, that he is also a wonderful counselor, that he is also a prince of peace, that he is also our everlasting father. So I want us to jump in to Isaiah chapter 9 to read this for the context of this promise that Jesus is our mighty God. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 7, which is one of the most famous chapters or sections in the entire Bible, especially around Christmas time. It says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For... To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Let's pray together. Jesus, we uh, are in need of you today. We are in need of you every day. 
But today, we specifically need you to impress upon our hearts belief that you are the mighty God. That that, that, that would be an ever-present, front of mind, constant and conscious belief that each of us have as we go throughout our day and face the challenges of the everyday, of the whirlwind of life, but especially the challenges of this year as it lingers and stays into next year. That we would be ever conscious that you alone are mighty God. And that we would be encouraged by that. That we would be held steady by that truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now in the Bible, darkness, which this passage talks about, is always about evil or ignorance. Right? And so the promise of Isaiah 9 is that into the evil and ignorance in our world, of which I'm sure we have many examples, um, into the evil and ignorance of our world has stepped a child. And that that child is a mighty God. And, and this is a theme, right? Like this is a theme reiterated throughout the rest of the scriptures that the God we serve is a mighty God and that that God serves to be with us, to protect us, to care for us. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Just his name is a strong tower that the righteous man runs into it and is safe. Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm chapter 46, 1 through 3 says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. This is a constant theme throughout the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, that God communicates that he is a mighty God and that he is there to protect his people from all the calamities and problems and challenges of this world. He goes, even if the mountains were to crumble into the sea, you are safe because God is mighty. He is our refuge and our strength. And I love this line from Psalm 46. He is our very present help in times of trouble. He is our very present help in times of trouble, that he is not just mighty and strong and capable, but far off, but that he is near. When we need help, he is right there to be with us. He is our refuge and our strength, and he is next to us in those times of need. This is the promise, uh, and it is a constant promise of the scriptures because it is a constant need of God's people to be protected. We are always at risk because Satan and sin are always at work. And so this constant promise meets this constant need and this constant need that we feel as a constant fear. And so God over and over and over and over reiterates that he is strong and mighty and powerful, that he is our strength and he is our refuge. 
And now at, at this time, when Isaiah 9 was written, and for many, many years afterwards, this, this, all, all the people of Israel had was this hope that one day there was going to be this child and this child was going to be a mighty God. But now we know that this passage speaks of Jesus, that Jesus is the mighty God that Isaiah prophesied about. And we see this power demonstrated in Jesus' life over and over. He healed the sick. He fed the 5,000. He turned water into wine. He made the lame to walk and the blind to see. He opened prison doors, let the captives free, and he raised the dead. But these miracles weren't simply done to impress us with his power. In fact, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. So he's talking about all these miracles. He goes, Jesus did many other signs, many other miracles, but he specifically calls them signs. And what do signs always do? Signs always point beyond themselves to some other truth or some other direction or some other thing, right? Like they tell us how to act or who to be or what's happening. They tell us where to go. And so John says that the miracles of Jesus, these demonstrations of power were in fact signs pointing us to who Jesus is. So the, the miracles of Jesus were not meant to simply make us go, wow, but to tell us who Jesus was. John continues, says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. He goes, I, I chose the miracles to be signs to point you to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that my, by believing you might have life in his name. John goes, listen, Jesus did a lot of stuff. He taught a lot of things. He performed a lot of miracles. He did a lot of crazy stuff. But I'm telling you, I, I curated this list. I, I, I showed you the things that demonstrated not just the power of Jesus. I mean, you should have seen some of the things he did just, just when it was like us and the disciples. He's showing off. He's making things appear and disappear. I don't know if that's true. But John's going, listen, he did a lot of other things. I'm telling you these ones so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing in him, you might have life. That Jesus is mighty God, and that by believing that Jesus is mighty God, we can experience true life in his life true life in his name, true life in his power. And we'll see how in just a moment. But let's go back to Isaiah for just a second because Isaiah picks up this theme of mighty God again in the very next chapter. In Isaiah chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, it says this. It says, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Now, there's a couple of things in, this, in these two short verses that I, I think are really applicable to us today, even though they were written thousands of years ago. Notice what, what Isaiah says. He goes, there's a day coming where the remnant of Israel, meaning not all Israel, but there will be a, a faithful remnant, a, a, a part of Israel that will return to God. And it says this, they will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord. Now, what does this mean, right? 
Isaiah is saying, and, and I think in this moment, perfectly capturing the decision that we have to make, the choice that we have to make, and the choice we do make every single day. But here's, here's what Isaiah is saying. He's prophesying about a day when God's people will no more lean on those who struck him, meaning they were depending upon and entrusting themselves to somebody. And Isaiah describes that somebody as somebody who has struck them. Now, commentators are kind of mixed on exactly who they're talking about. But one thing they agree on is that Israel, though oppressed by Assyria and oppressed by all kinds of different uh, other people groups in their surrounding area, they would be oppressed by those people, but they would lean on them for protection against kind of worse enemies. In fact, one commentator puts it this way. It says, Israel had sought security in the Aram-Ephraimite alliance, you know the one, um, against the rising threat of Assyria. Okay, so Assyria is this big, powerful country that was a, a, an oppressive threat to Israel. And so they're leaning on the Aramites, okay? So the Aram-Ephrathite alliance is when a, a certain tribe of Israel had made an alliance with the Aramites to kind of protect them, even though, right? Even though Aram had been their national foe throughout the previous century, striking them over and over and over again. But the day will come when such folly will be renounced and there will be a true reliance on the Lord. In other words, Israel had been looking to external sources of strength to protect them even though those external forces, the Aramites in this situation, had struck them, meaning in the past that they had been uh, oppressive to them, that they had done evil to them, that they had fought with them. But in this moment where they're afraid of the Assyrians, the Aramites are like a lesser evil. And so they make this alliance with a people who have struck them instead of turning to the Lord, right? What does this mean? And why would Israel do this? Israel, when, when pressed, when persecuted, when fearful and anxious, had turned to earthly allies to protect them. Even at times, their outright enemies to protect them, believing them to be a better option than whatever alternative their imagination could conceive. So all they see is Assyria coming down on them and they're grasping at what can we lean on to be our protection, to be our refuge, to be our strength, to be our ever-present help in times of need. And, and unfortunately, they didn't remember any of those Bible verses because as they saw this danger looming, they reached not vertically to God, but horizontally to the Aramites, even though these are not good and not trustworthy people. Now, this is the very heart of idolatry as the Bible defines it. We lean on things that are not God to do for us what only God can do. Idols will always overpromise and underdeliver, right? Like this is this is the the constant trap that we get into. That we have either a need uh, as a result of some external force against us, and we have a need for protection or for strength or for refuge, 
or we have a desire to go get a thing and we go, okay, what is this illustration I use all the time? What is the lever I can pull to get the thing I want or perceive to need? What's the lever I can pull to protect myself? What's the lever I can pull to get power, to get influence, to get money, to get position, whatever it is. And we're looking around going, what lever can I pull to get the thing that I need? And Israel, like us each and every day reached for powers, we reached for levers to pull to protect them that were ultimately idolatrous in the sense that they claimed to be something that only God can be. Only God is our ever-present help in times of need. Only God is our refuge and our strength. Only God has the power to provide for our needs and protect us from evil. And yet, over and 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 over, we reach for things that are not God in those moments instead of reaching for the mighty God we have, right? Like there's this one big lever and it's right in the middle and it's the easiest lever to pull, the biggest, most powerful, strongest lever there is, and yet we look past it to other levers, other idols, other things that are actually like God, promising to be God, promising to be able to act like God, even when they can't. You know what I've noticed? I've noticed that the, the weaker the idol, the more it promises. The, the weaker the, the, the lever we have to pull, the more bluster, the more over-promising that it does. The weaker a thing is, the more it promises. The weaker the man, the more bluster and false promises it makes. It reminds me of a blowfish, right? My kids love watching these nature shows and there was this section about a blowfish, right? That they're actually these tiny, tiny little fish, but when an enemy comes near, they blow themselves up to, you know, whatever. Oh, let's say a thousand times their normal size. I have no idea. It doesn't matter. I'm not a scientist, but let's say a million times their normal size to try to pretend to be much bigger than they actually are to scare off whatever predator might come their way to give the impression that they are big, but the reality is that they are, when they are extended, they are fragile and hollow. This is the pattern of idolatry. That the weaker a thing is, the more it blows itself up, the bigger promises that it makes, the more bluster and false promise and big talk that it gives because it knows, it knows that it's fragile, it knows that it's hollow, and it knows that in a minute it's not going to be able to hold out any longer and it's going to shrink back to its normal size. And yet these are the idols we choose over and over and over. Right? So, so then it's striking... That, that, that we see the mighty God come into this world as a child. It's striking to see how a truly mighty God can come to the world as a defenseless child, unassuming, unpromising, no posturing or pretense. Because see, only true strength can appear weak and vulnerable because they know they are neither. Let me say that again. Only true strength 
is comfortable feeling weak or appearing weak and vulnerable because it knows, true strength knows that it is neither weak nor vulnerable, so it doesn't matter how it appears. True strength doesn't care how it appears because it knows what's true. Only the weak posture because they are trying to be something they are not. So in our fear, we, we lean on things that not only do we know cannot hold us up, but we also often know are actively against us or using us for their own ends. Money and jobs and people and leaders can all fall into this category. We stay in bad relationships because bad relationships are better than loneliness. So we have this fear of loneliness and we pull the lever of a bad relationship to try to solve this loneliness problem, even though we know that this lever is ultimately going to hurt us because this relationship is not healthy, but it's better than this, this fear we have of loneliness. And so we reach for the idol of a bad relationship. We, we reach for the idol of a demanding, life-absorbing job because it's better than the loss of status or the loss of income or the loss of position or the loss of uh, whatever, whatever posturing goes into these kind of demanding jobs. We pull that lever and blow up much of our kind of healthy life rhythms uh, at the expense of uh, uh, this desire for position and status. And so we pull a lever of a thing we know is hurting us. We know is killing us. We know is hurting our families. We know has this huge trickle effect into our devotional life, into our mental health, into our spiritual life, into our sense of peace. But we pull that lever because it's better than the alternative egotistical, blustering, wannabe strongman leaders are better than letting the opposition win or anything is better than egotistical, blustering, wannabe strongman leaders. Trends, fads, popular ideas, and ideology, even though they are often paper thin, logically incoherent, or obviously not Christian, are better than being out of step, irrelevant, or out of the know. See, it's just, this just happens over and over and over, right? In, in Israel, like they faced actual oppression from actual people groups actually trying to kill them. That's likely not the situation you face. You, you face issues of status or position or isolation or loneliness or, you know, finding your place in this world, probably not enduring actual physical torment. Maybe you are. But see, to, to Israel, God came over and over and over and over and over and said, I am your mighty God. I know there's an army bearing down on you, but I am your ever-present help in times of need. I know that there is a murderous horde knocking on your front door, but I can be your refuge and strength. And so he says to you, I, I, I know that you fear losing status. Let me be your mighty God. I know that you fear loneliness. Let me be ever present with you. I, I know that you fear this, this uncertain future. Let me be strong enough to be in charge of the future for you. 
pull the big, shiny, easy lever in the middle that activates mighty God in our lives instead of these small, petty, over-promising, under-delivering, weak, fragile, false-promising idols that we surround ourselves with. The good news of this promise is that we have a better answer. We have a better option. No matter the fear or desire, there will always be a thousand idols happy to claim to be your answer, to be your savior. And the weaker they are, the more loudly they will claim to be what you need. They will make big promises and be shiny and, 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 and attractive and hollow and fragile on the inside. Right, like thinking back to even that rope bridge illustration at the very beginning, right? Like nobody has ever tried to convince you or no one's ever had to convince you to just walk out on a normal bridge. I mean, except for in Seattle, right? Like we don't trust our bridges here and for good reason. But normally in most uh, modern cities, you don't have to convince people to walk out onto a bridge. But I have never been on a rope bridge where I didn't spend most of my time coaxing people onto it, right? You're like, no, 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 it's totally fine. See, and you start jumping and they're like, no, right? Like this half the fun or half the process is just convincing people. Maybe I'm the idiot. I don't know. It's hard to know, but, but it's just convincing people to walk out onto the rope bridge. Why? Because it's obviously fragile. It's obviously tenuous. And everybody knows that there is way more risk walking out on the rope bridge than there is just walking out on a regular bridge. So, so we have to beg and plead. We have to draw. We have to overpromise. It's going to be the most amazing moment of your life. When you get to the middle, you'll see God. I promise, right? Like these are the promises we have to make in order to get people out. And these are the promises that idols make. Meanwhile, God is just present with you, stable and sturdy and there. Your ever-present help in times of need. Your strong tower, your refuge and your strength, unmoving and unmovable. He is your mighty God. Now, Isaiah uses a word in chapter 10 that I want to kind of hone in on. Um, as our kind of action for what to do with this idea. He says that one day the people of God will lean on God instead of leaning on these strong men, right? Like this is our answer. This is our alternative that we would lean on God instead of leaning on our idols. And I, I love that, it, that Isaiah uses this phrase, which is so relatable and so applicable. Like we, we know what it means to lean on things. We've all leaned on a thing. So the Bible is kind of sometimes abstract and esoteric as it can be is often sometimes just like really practical to go just lean on God instead of leaning on something that can't hold you up ultimately. Right? So this is our answer. This is the call of Isaiah to us, right? And, and we know what it means to lean on idols. We, we give ourselves to them. This is, the, this is what we do each and every day. We work for them. We sacrifice for them. We pay homage. We pledge fealty. We work long hours. We endure abuse. We suspend disbelief. We sacrifice our time, our relationships, and our mental health. And where has that left us? 
It's left us anxious. It's left us fearful. It's left us stressed out. It's left us overextended. Conversely, what does it mean to lean on God? What does it actually look like to lean on God? I've got four things. First, pray. When, when the Assyrian horde is at your front porch or the lies about loneliness are creeping into your head, pray. I know that's simple and I know that's a very pastory answer from me, but it's also the first step towards pulling that lever of, of having yourself be present with the mighty God. And I, and I just wonder, like, how often is that our first move to just pray? We, we have some fear, we have some need, we have some desire, something. Like, how many of us go, oh, gosh, I really need to pray. That's, the, that's my first move. I got to pray. I, I love this. Every, every night uh, at, at dinner, we pray for our dinner. And my daughter, Tess, who's five, she likes to pray. So she often will uh, ask to pray. And she prays very simple prayers. They're great. But from the very beginning of this year, she has, and, and this whole pandemic, she has prayed, God, please make coronavirus stop. That's her prayer. It's a very simple prayer. Please make coronavirus stop. And every time she prays it, I think, you know what? That's a great prayer. I have not prayed that prayer. I, I've prayed that God would protect our family. I, I've prayed that God would, uh, you know, end it soon or, you know, that God would care for us in the midst. I prayed a lot of things and, you know, I pray, but, but I've never just prayed, God, make coronavirus stop. And, and there's a simplicity to that, that only a five-year-old could, could have right? That she goes, this is a terrible thing. I'm home a lot. Everyone's home a lot. People seem cranky. Uh, let's get rid of coronavirus. God, make it stop. Okay. So when we pray, like I, I, I follow the ACTS ACTS acronym for prayer. It's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, which is my favorite part, which is asking for stuff, right? But we can't just say ask for stuff. So we got to call it supplication. Okay. So adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Here's what it means to lean on God. Start by just declaring. Adoration is just saying, God, you are great. I adore you. How would we adore a, a spouse or a friend? We would tell them all the great things about them. Here's what's amazing about God. God goes, hey, adore me. And part of us goes like, okay, easy, bro, right? Like that's a bit much. Who, who says that? Who tells us to adore them, right? Like dictators do. But God says, adore me. Tell me all the great things about me. And guess what happens when we do? It helps us. Because what do we do? In that adoration section of our prayer, all we do is go, God, you're great. God, you're powerful. God, you're with me. God, you love me. God, you're gracious. God, you care for me. God, you strengthen me. This is who you are. You have been merciful to me. You have been gracious with me. And guess what that does? Does God feel better? Maybe. But I am reminded of who God is. By adoring God, God goes, I know that if I, I tell you to adore me, you might have problems with that in the 21st century when, when you get weird about that stuff. But I tell, I'm telling you, if you will say out loud the good things about me, it will help you. 
there is a psychological effect that that has on us for us to call out the goodness of God because it reminds us. It reminds us, oh yeah, God is strong. God is mighty. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is my strength. He is my ever-present help in times of need. And when we say that out loud or we write that down, it reminds us of who God is and who God is is good news for us. So we adore God. We confess. We confess our weakness and not only just our weakness or confess our sin, but we confess what we believe about God. There's a reason all the kind of ancient creeds are often called confessions. They are what we confess to be true. This is my confession. I confess that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. I confess that I am not the son of the living God. I am not the savior. I am not the Christ. I am weak and needy and sinful, but he is pure and holy and saving me. That's my confession. And then I thank him, which requires me to acknowledge the fact that I am not the source of all the good in my life. By thanking God, we acknowledge, oh yeah, I've got things that have happened out here that I had no effect on that were given to me as gifts, which then again reminds us that God is the kind of God who gives us gifts, that God is the kind of God who cares for us and provides for us. That act of thanksgiving is really, really important because it reminds us I am not the source of all good in my life. God is. And then supplication. We ask God for things which acknowledges I cannot bring about these things. I need you. Which again is a reminder, full circle now, of who God is. That the very reason we started praying in the first place and that we can finally get to the part we like, the supplication part, right? Like I write this much adoration, this much confession, this much thanksgiving, and then like this much supplication, right? Like, But the very reason I can get to that point is because of who God is and who I'm not and what he's already done. And based on those things, now I can, I can supplicate like crazy because I know who he is and that he cares for me. So the first step of leaning on God is just to pray. Just pray. Let that be your first move. Number two, wait. So pray and then wait. Wait on God and God's timing. And here's what's gonna happen you will get to exhale and the anxiety and the fear and, and the, the tied upness of your heart will untie itself and you will feel yourself become less anxious, less stressed. This is not a, it's not a meditation technique that de-stresses your life. This is you waiting on God, acknowledging God's on his own timetable. God does things when God's going to do them. I am dependent on God, which means I can rest because it's not on me because it's on God. So I can rest. We can then intentionally stop leaning on other things that will always fail us, right? We can't start by stopping can't start by stopping. You have to start by establishing the real, true, strong answer to your problems. Because your problems are not fake. Your problems are not illusions. Your problems are real. It's your solutions that are illusions. 
And so we have to start by relying on God, leaning on God in prayer, waiting on God to move and to act. And in, in so doing, kind of de-stress and, and, and detangle, disentangle our own hearts so that we're waiting on God at peace. And it's only in that place of assurance of God's strength and peace in our own hearts that we will then be able to stop leaning on the idols around us. As long as we don't have a better solution to our problem, we will always lean on lesser solutions. So we have to start by establishing the right solution. Then we can avoid those lesser solutions. So we have to then catch ourselves every time we find ourselves leaning on, whether it is a, a, you know, wanting to text a certain person or wanting to go on a certain website or going, whatever, whatever the lean is, whatever it is that provides you that hit of, of assurance, of, of comfort from those idols, whatever it is that you would catch yourself in your peace and lack of anxiety that you have experienced because you've begun to lean on God that you'd catch yourself and go, no. And then you'd pray. And then you'd wait. And then you'd catch yourself. And then the last one is that you watch. You watch to see how your anxiety diminishes. Even if your problems haven't gone away, that your anxiety diminishes. In the, it, it, just because you are leaning on something strong and solid and capable of protecting you. So I want you to watch, not only watch your own heart, but watch to pay attention to see how God shows up and solves those problems. The good news of the gospel begins with the nature and character of God. Jesus is a mighty God. He is not weak, nor is he only human. He is a mighty God. He is above all things, before all things, in all things, and he is mighty to save. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote a hymn called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And, and one of the verses goes like this. He says, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal, but implied that in heaven there is. That this is our hope, that we do have a foe. And he works against us great evil. And there is not a power on earth that can match him. But we have a power in heaven who has not only already outmatched him, but has done so for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so very thankful that you are not just a good teacher, that you are not just a moral example, but that you are a mighty God. May we rest in that truth. May we be able to stare down the Assyrian hordes in our own lives that, that manifest themselves in so many different ways, so many different needs, so many different fears. And we would be able to stare them down at peace, not because we are strong or because they are weak. Neither is true. Our enemy is strong and we are weak, but we have one that fights for us our fortress, our refuge, our strength, our ever-present help in times of need. You. 
And so I pray that we would lean on you. We would hide behind you. We would allow you to fight our battles for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.